0: As we uh, look at the opening of this letter here in Second Timothy, in our study through the pastorals, we see Timothy, this apostolic delegate, being entrusted by Paul, the apostle of the Lord, with the good deposit. The good deposit is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good deposit is, is the apostolic teaching that Paul was entrusted with, and now he's passed on to Timothy. But he's continually warned in 1 Timothy, here in 2 Timothy. He's warned that there are those who have done something else with the good deposit. Instead of receiving it and guarding it and preserving it and being uh, faithfully teaching it and proclaiming it, they're distorting the gospel. They're teaching different doctrines. They're rejecting it. And they're exploiting it. Some of them are using the good deposit that they should be preaching and being faithful to for selfish gain. They're teaching ascetic practices, leading people into legalism, adding something else to the gospel, but ultimately it's leading them away from Christ and leading them away from the truth, the knowledge of the truth, the faith entrusted once and for all for the saints. And after reminding Timothy in chapter 2 of... Of the character of the faithful minister, of the things that should characterize his life, his calling, his ministry. He uses six metaphors for that. That of the dedicated soldier, that of the disciplined athlete, the diligent farmer, the unashamed good worker, the one who's been approved, the workman approved, that of the honorable vessel that is purified and made clean and fit for the master's use and that of the Lord's servant. After showing him these things concerning which it characterized his ministry, now he's turning uh, in this passage here in chapter 3, he's turning his attention to prepare Timothy for the difficulty he's going to face in the days ahead. If he's a faithful teacher, a faithful minister entrusted with this good deposit and is faithful to guard it and proclaim it, He's going to have some hardships in ministry. He's going to share in suffering as a good soldier as he exhorted him to. And you consider all of the language that Paul uses in this letter. The military language. The the military metaphors like that of a soldier. And all of these exhortations, they are used to prepare Timothy for the spiritual warfare that he's going to face. Now, he's already been facing it. But he's going to continue to face it. Why? Because he's fighting on the front lines of gospel ministry. And he's fighting in a time, a period of time, that Scripture refers to as the last days. So let's turn here to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Hear the words of the living God. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambers oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. These are the words of the Lord. I want us to look at this, spend a little time here on this first verse there, where he writes, but understand this. Think of those phrases. Understand this. There is something here that Paul is is writing to Timothy that he wants to make sure that Timothy has a complete grasp on, that he is prepared for, both in knowledge and spiritually and actively in how he is Uh, to discharge his duties as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants him to understand, first and foremost, what it is that is going to characterize the time that Scripture refers to as the last days. Now, as I refer to the last days and I speak of the last days, there's probably some imagery that's come to your mind. Depending on how you view the end times, you'll have some understanding as to when you think that period of time called The Last Days is. If you get your eschatology from the Left Behind series, or, you know, the movie with Nicolas Cage, I'm not sure if that was the better one or the other one was. They're both equally as bad, in my opinion. (laughs) Sorry if you loved it, and you have the poster hanging up at home. But if your eschatology is from that vantage point, then you're going to see The Last Days as a shortened period of time immediately preceding the return of the Lord, that is going to experience some heightened um, uh, tribulation, times of tribulation, times of trouble uh, for the church of Jesus Christ. But, if you recall our series as we studied through the book of Revelation, and we taught extensively on the last days as the scripture unfolds that prophetically in the Old Testament, and how the New Testament apostolic writers refer to Uh, This period, the last last days, uh, we see the last days as the period that was inaugurated at the first coming of Jesus Christ, inaugurated at his resurrection and ascension. That period began this time called the last days. All of the apostolic writers see the dawning of the last days with this first arrival of Jesus Christ. Think about Peter on the day of Pentecost. <clears throat> what happened? The Spirit of God was poured out on the church. And, and he stands up and preaches. And what does he tell them is now fulfilled in their hearing? He cites Joel's prophecy that in the last days, what was God going to do? Pour out his Spirit on all flesh. And he's saying, ta da! This is what he said would happen in the last days. The writer of Hebrews, right at the beginning of Hebrews, says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But look at this. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There it is, Hebrews one. In these last days, not in the coming last days, these last days. Paul writing in 1 Timothy four one, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, same thing as the last days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. And when does he say these later times are going to come? That the Spirit says there's going to be some that are going to be deceived by the teaching of demon, demons? It was right then and there. Immediately following that, he's warning Timothy of those who are doing that very same thing, right? These are the last days. I've said it before like this. We've been in the last days. We are in the last days. We will be in the last days until the triumphant return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are in the last days. This is not some future far-off thing, him writing to Timothy in this moment is a reminder to him that that is the very period of time that Timothy finds himself in. The last days are here. He's already living in them. Okay. Now, we may see an intensification of trials, difficulties, suffering, and persecution for the church as things progress and move forward to the imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it doesn't diminish the reality That these are the last days. We're in them. Amen? Even if you don't believe it, we're in them. All right? Now, I don't think what Paul is writing to Timothy here is a surprise. No doubt they've had this discussion before. No question that the apostle has already instructed Timothy that, hey, look, these Old Testament prophecies, this is with Jesus' arrival here, his coming, his resurrection, his ascension. We're in that period of time that Daniel prophesied about. We're in these moments here. But he brings it up. He brings it to his attention. Not because Timothy didn't know about him. But specifically because of what marks this period called the last days. He says in the last days will come what? Times of difficulty. Times of difficulty. So when Timothy faces opposition... Hostility, suffering, opposition in terms of his proclamation of the gospel. Hardship for the sake of Christ and his gospel. He must remember why that is happening. These are times of difficulty. They're times of difficulty. This is what will be happening throughout his lifetime. And we know he's referring to what's happening at present because of everything that comes right after this passage, he gives him a command on how to deal with that and how to deal with those causing the time of difficulty in verse 5, which we'll get to in a moment. The entirety of the church age, this period called the last days, will be marked by peril, will be marked by difficulty, by stressful times for the people of God. So Timothy mustn't think that he can avoid it. He mustn't think that, well, maybe this is just a short phase. And then it's going to be sunny and blue skies for the church from here on out until Jesus returns. He mustn't think that if he just keeps his head down, if he stays out of trouble, doesn't stir up trouble, just kind of lays low, that somehow he'll be exempt from the times of difficulty. Nope. These times of difficulty will permanently mark the last days. Is a permanent characteristic of these times of difficulty. Notice what he writes here. In the last days there will come a time. Times of difficulty. Not might come. Times of difficulty. Not maybe come. Times of difficulty. There will come. It's a sure thing. It's guaranteed. Brothers and sisters, if we take a stand for Jesus Christ if we pledge our fealty to Jesus Christ alone, if we stand firm in the truth, if we hold fast to the confession of our faith, guess what is going to happen to us? We will face times of difficulty. We will be on the firing line and experience these perils and troubles. Why? We are in the last days. This is why we come to these letters... And we find how extremely relevant they are for us today. Just as much as they were for these first century disciples of Jesus Christ. The church at Ephesus needs to hear this message. Timothy needs to hear this message. They are facing times of difficulty. And so are we today, aren't we? Yes? I mean, don't you feel it? Don't you experience it? Don't you see it? It's not unique to our times. It has been from the beginning, is now, and will be until our Lord returns. We will have times of difficulty. Church history has borne this reality out time and time again. And if the Lord tarries, it will go on until the appointed time. That word for difficulty uh, in the Greek means violence. Violence. Stressful, dangerous, hard. These are not times of ease. They're not times of comfort. They're not times of peace. It's times of difficulty and peril. Now Jesus armed his disciples with this same understanding when he taught them this in John chapter 16. These last words as Jesus gathered with his disciple in that time immediately before he was To die on the cross. He said to them, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation. Times of difficulty. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You will have tribulation. Not peace in this world. We don't look to our time in this world as peaceful. But where do we have peace? In Christ Jesus. In him we have peace. So we don't need to fear the perilous times. Because we can take heart knowing that Christ has done what? He's overcome the world. In the world you're going to have tribulation. But don't worry about it. You're not going to find peace there. You'll find peace in me through the tribulation. Through the times of difficulty. Because I have overcome the world. He has the final say on the whole matter. But we have tribulation. These last days are moving forward in a relentless march that will culminate with the inevitable triumphant and glorious return of King Jesus. So we can take comfort. This is not discouraging news, it's encouraging news. Now, I know we're not going to cheer that we're in times of difficulty, but we can because we know what's on the other side of this. This is temporary. This is but for a moment. The last days have an expiration date on God's calendar. Whatever that is, and no man knows it, it doesn't matter what charts they use, there is an expiration date. There is a moment that this time of, peri- of this period of difficulty will come to an end. So we should not be surprised that the church is persecuted. We should not be surprised that the world hates us. Jesus said that's exactly what would happen. The world hated him. will hate us also. We'll see that in a moment. We should not be surprised when a government wants to silence people of faith. We should not be surprised that culture mocks Christianity and ridicules people of faith. We should not be surprised that tech and social media companies... Want to suppress Christian content. On a personal level, we should not be surprised when a co worker gets angry at us if we share our faith with them. Or that our very own family may turn against us for our testimony to Jesus Christ. This should not surprise us. We are in times of difficulty because we're in the last days. Now, the book of Revelation shows us that there are some very real enemies of Jesus Christ. Using the imagery of the dragon, the two beasts, and the false prophet, right? There are real enemies of Christ and his people. Satan, ungodly world leaders and powers, the world system, counterfeit and false religion, all are allied against Christ and his people. We have a very real enemy that wants to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Wants to destroy the people of God. So we should not be surprised when he uses worldly agents to try to accomplish those means and ends. You will not be loved by the world if you're faithful to Jesus Christ. You will be hated. We have a whole segment of Christianity air quotes Christianity in the West here that's entire purpose is to be liked by the world for the world to say gosh these Christians are just such nice amazing people and they will get that but not by being faithful to Jesus Christ not by standing firm in the truth not by holding fast to the word of faith but by compromising by watering down the gospel message. By only presenting nice, meek, and mild Jesus to the world. By punching right and hugging left. This is not how we get the world to love us in a faithful way. Look what Jesus wrote and said to his disciples in John 15, 18-21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Me, why on earth would we think the world's ever going to love us? Why would we want the world to love us? They hate our Lord. Now this is not a reason to be a jerk and unloving to unbelievers and pagans and those who who don't know Jesus Christ, even those who ridicule and mock Christ and His people. But we can't for a moment begin to think that our sojourn, Here on the earth, in these times of difficulty, are going to be marked by peace and love and joy and happiness from the world towards us. They hate our Lord. Well, of course they're going to hate us also. And they're going to want to make our life miserable in the process. So we are not. Yeah, they are doing it. So we are not caught off guard by the hostility of the world. We are not going to experience some utopia here on earth before Christ returns. Sorry to my post-millennialist brothers out there. We're not going to experience some wonderful, large expanse of Christianity where Christendom is going to dominate and there's peace in this world. That's not what we see here. Times of difficulty. There may be small moments and pockets of a ceasefire of the hostility. But what characterizes this time... All the way through the church age is going to be difficulty and peril. Every day, in a sense, presents a time of difficulty on this fallen world where sin and death prevail. It's the default condition from the fall forward until Christ returns. We will have trouble. But be encouraged. Be encouraged, saints. This is not doom and gloom for us. Christ has overcome the world. He has said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Fear not. Fear not. We win. You believe that? We win. Because he's won. And we know how it ends. Times of difficulty. But what's the cause that Paul presents to us here? The cause of the times of difficulty for People of God, well, he introduces us to the troublemakers here, all right. And there's four elements here I want to look at. The first being the moral character of the troublemakers uh, that cause these times of difficulty for the people of God. Verse two for people, people that's the problem, people are the problem, right? People are the troublemakers. People are the cause of the times of difficulty for the people of God, specifically ungodly people, evil people, wicked people, perverted people, people whose minds are hostile to God. It will be the activities of evil and wicked men that will create these perilous seasons in the last days for the church of Jesus Christ. Look what he writes there. I want to Read this again, verses 2 through 4. We won't have time to go through each one of these in detail, but let's get them back in the forefront of our mind here. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That does not paint a pretty picture of these troublemakers, does it? Using 19 different expressions here in these three verses to describe the moral conduct and disposition of these troublemakers. We read this list. It's as if it's ripped from, you know, today's headlines or yesterday's headlines when we Read the news, watch the news, and see what is going on in our world, and see how people are behaving and how they're treating one another. We could use these very same terms to describe those people. But bear in mind here that with the list that Paul is presenting to us here, he is not trying to paint a comprehensive or exhaustive list of the moral conduct and character of these troublemakers in the last days for the church of Jesus Christ. Anytime you see a list in the scripture that Paul gives. And he loves to give us lists of things. Especially lists of sins. They're never exhaustive. They're just a representation. Here are some of them. Here's just some of what they look like. Or some of what they do. It's a representative list of that. Of those who will create times of difficulty for the church. But look at the list here. Because four of the expressions are compounded. With the word love. They are lovers of what? Self. Money. And pleasure. Not lovers of what is good. And certainly they don't love what they should love. Which is God. They do not love God. Love. This expression is bookending this this short list that he's giving us here. They're lovers of self rather than lovers of. Of God. That's what they're doing. At the core of the rotten conduct of these people is a misdirected, misapplied, misplaced love. Their love is twisted, distorted, perverted, inverted, inwardly focused. They love self. Self love has replaced the love they should have for God. What happens when the love for God is replaced with self-God? When we turn it inward and we make ourselves the center of the universe rather than God? Well, instead of worshiping God, where do we turn that worship to? Ourselves or to anything else in all of creation but where it should be? God. And when that happens, only evil can flow out. We see this conduct in the narcissistic and twisted culture of our day. That self love is is pretty much at the core, right, of every wicked thing that is against God and His people. Self love, that's the worship of our time in our day. You're the most important thing out there. Think of the messages presented out there, right? You're the most important thing. Nothing is more important than you. Look out for yourself, right? First and foremost, don't let anyone tell you how to live your life. You determine who you are or what you want to be. You can choose that. The great commandment commandment which Jesus said is, is in what all the law and the prophets depend on is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment is what he told us. It is the first thing. It is the priority. And a failure to love God as a matter of first things inevitably leads to a love of other things in its place. And if we turn it inward to ourself, no good comes from that. Only evil flows from that. A love pleasure. That's what this world is all about. Seeking pleasure. Whatever feels good to you, do it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. What scripture says. It doesn't matter what other people tell you. You do. You do you. (laughs) Well, we can do ourselves. Do what we want to do with ourselves. But inevitably, it will lead to a misplaced love. That is twisted and distorted. And never to a love of God. We already talked about the love of money. We saw that in 1 Timothy. Right? Where he wrote to Timothy saying that it is a root of all kinds of evil. It is a source, a fountainhead from which when, 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 we, want, when we love money and the pursuit of riches and gain in an ungodly way leads to more and more evil. He writes of the proud, arrogant, swollen with conceit. Words that describe the character and conduct of those who oppose what is good, what is holy, what is righteous, what is God-honoring. He writes that they're heartless, treacherous, reckless, brutal, They don't care about others. They don't care how they're treating the people of God. And they'll employ any and every means possible to oppose the true faith. It's a tragic representation of the people who inhabit the last days. But here, there's a plot twist, I think, to this. I want you to see this because there's another thing he writes following this that characterizes these people. In verse 5 he writes, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Paul is not just writing about those outside the church here. The pagans, the unbelievers who will make trouble for God's people. For sure that is a reality of the times of difficulty in the last days. He's not talking about there, he's talking about in the church, inside the church. He's talking about religious people, false teachers, false converts, people who are part of the gathering, part of the visible church. They have an appearance of godliness. They look like the sheep. They talk like the sheep. They show up at the church gatherings. They tithe. They sing the songs. They say amen to the prayers. They are part of the fellowship. They look like the real thing on the outside. There's an outward appearance of piety. But they deny the power of godliness. They have the form. But they lack the substance. It's not true religion. It's not a true heart conversion. And godliness is not the aim of their religious engagement. Now Paul wrote in 1st Timothy chapter These were those whom other Christians were maybe turning to for spiritual guidance to learn from about something about the faith. And he's saying, No, they're turned. What they've done is distorted the gospel. They're teaching a different doctrine, doctrines of demons, and and they're introducing a form of legalism into the church, a distortion of the gospel. And Paul writes that the spirit says that in the last days, these kinds of teaching will cause some to depart from the faith. That they are teachings of demons from deceitful spirits. What are they doing? They're using human vessels. Men who are liars with seared consciences who pervert sound doctrine that will lead some astray. That was the last day's reality for Timothy and the church at Ephesus. It's also the last day's reality for us today, 2,000 years later. We said it last week. The visible Christian community, the church, the visible church is a mixed bag of people. It's true and false converts present in every church. There are sheep. There are goats. There are faithful and true preachers of the gospel, and there will be false ones as well. No question, what do we call people who have an appearance of godliness but deny its power? Who outwardly look the part but inwardly do not? They're hypocrites, right? That's why Jesus railed against the Pharisees. They were experts at washing the outside and having that appearance of godliness and piety and righteousness. But they were rotten to the core. He said "The your inside is... is, 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 is Composed of, of, of rotting corpse, rotting flesh. You are, you are a tomb on the inside. You're spiritually dead. Though on the outside, people look at you and they go, oh, they must be the real deal. But they're not. They're not the real deal at all. And when we look at things like this and this reality, this should be cause for us to evaluate ourselves. To evaluate our own hearts. Because when we initially started this, right, we were immediately thinking, Oh, that this is all about people on the outside. This is them out there against the church. And Paul goes, Oh no, but I'm talking about the ones inside, too. They're present, they're also. Too many are content with taking on the Christian title, learning the Christian lingo and speaking it, attending the Bible studies. And outwardly, they can fool others, but inwardly, they're spiritually dead. Head knowledge, but not true heart conversion. There are people who do not pursue holiness and purity and righteousness, and they don't exhibit the fruit of genuine saving faith. They lack love and humility, they're not kind or gentle, they're selfish. They're Christians in name only. Have the form, but not the substance. And just as it was possible for someone to be a member at the church of Ephesus, and maybe even teach and be a recognized teacher in that church, and still be lost, that same reality exists today. Why do we continually uphold the gospel and proclaim the gospel and rehearse the gospel and repeat the gospel and remind you of the gospel? Because only the gospel offers the antidote for the kind of self-righteousness here and false piety that Paul is talking about here. It's only in Christ that we actually get this new heart. Where we experience a new birth, a Fundamental change from the inside out. It's not get the outside clean and then the inside will be clean. No, God cleans us from the inside and then it works its way out of us into the good works of the gospel. It's a total transformation that reorients our affections from self-love to God-love. Taking us from the center and putting God in this rightful place at the center of our lives. I'm going to read a lengthy passage here in Second Peter. Where Peter, an apostle of the Lord, exhorts believers to make their calling and election sure. This is an evaluation of sorts. Second Peter 1, verses 3 through 12. The apostle writes, His divine power has granted, us, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence... By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. With virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Immediately, you can see this is an opposite list of what Paul is describing, right? Verse 8, for these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. There's a lot there. What is he saying there? Look at your lives, brothers and sisters. Now, he's writing to Christians here. He's calling them brothers. He's writing to members here of the visible church. He's reminding them immediately that it is God who has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. How to live this godly life out. How to pursue and walk in holiness. How to walk in the qualities he's describing here. All right? So that's what he says. For this very reason, an account of What we have and who we are in Him, make every effort here. Make your calling and election sure. Possess these things in increasing qualities. Don't forget them. Don't be blind to the things that you should be walking in out of this newness of life. Because He says to them, You know them and are established in the truth. You're Christians, you're followers of Jesus Christ. This is your reality. So if you're not walking in these and and those other qualities that Paul writes about are the things that are marking your life, that's cause for concern. You may not be in. You may not be in Christ Jesus. You may not have experienced the new birth. We're not talking about being saved by doing these qualities. We know that's not how we're saved. Well, he's not saying, if well, if you pursue kindness and self-control and these other virtues, well, well, that's what's going to gain you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's already, he's already told us how we get life and godliness. That comes from God. It's his divine power that has granted that to us. But he goes, I need to remind you of these qualities so that you remain established in the truth, so that you keep your eyes fixed on the first things and the things that matter. And demonstrate the fruits of a genuine conversion. That the gospel is at work in your life. It is important. So we evaluate ourselves with that. Now Paul gives only one command here. There's only one imperative in this entire passage that he gives to Timothy. Concerning these times of difficulty in the last days. And these people that are the cause of the times of difficulties for the people of God. He says... Avoid such people. Short, sweet, and to the point. Don't you like those? It's like a good bullet statement. It's how I like to receive information. Don't give me the whole drawn out story. Don't take me on bunny trails. Don't give me the other stuff. No, no. Avoid such people. And then say, hey, listen, just get to, 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 yeah. kind of work with them, coddle them, you know, just take into consideration they're also sinners. Yeah. Avoid such people. If those who purport to teach the sound doctrine of the faith but do not, and they do not demonstrate the fruit and power of the gospel in their lives, they are to be avoided. And the word is strong. It implies a, a complete separation. Not unlike what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 16. I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles Contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive, the ignorant, the gullible. Avoid them. Mark and avoid them. They have the appearance, right? They're teaching, but what are they doing? They're putting obstacles in front of the people of God. Hurdles. Not to the genuine faith. Not to the true gospel, right? But they they don't serve the Lord. They don't serve Him. They deceive the hearts of the naive. After confronting, after calling them to repentance, after strongly admonishing them, disciplining them, rebuking them, if they persist, Timothy is to mark and avoid them. And he's to warn others to do the same. Why is that so important? Well... It's important for what he writes next. These individuals, if left unchecked, are going to have devastating impact and trouble in the church and cause trouble in the church. For six, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. These types of people that he's talking about here will prey on the spiritually weak. Ever see those little nature documentaries? Where the lion, right, is hunting prey? Where does he go after? Well, it's really the lionesses that hunt. The lion, the male, is in the cave waiting for the woman to cook the meal. (laughs) Bring home the carcass. (laughs) They kill, and then he just kind of saunters over, shoos them away, and feasts, as it should be in every home. But, just kidding, just kidding. Amen, amen. Go after the weak, right? The ones trailing behind, maybe the one that has a limp or is injured, right? This is kind of the imagery being used here. They creep, and they capture These are people who will exert an ungodly influence on the spiritually weak. That word creep tells us about their methods and their tactics. Their stealth. Their covert. They're done under false pretenses. They're not coming in through the front door. They're taking a backdoor approach to worm their way into homes. Into people's lives. But to what end? They're coming with a distortion, an aberration of the gospel here that's not going to lead to the truth. They're like slick, smooth talking salesmen, right? Worming their way into households to peddle their false teaching in godless ways. And look who Paul writes are their target. Who's their prey that they are capturing? That word capturing actually means to take hostage. They're capturing weak women. No, weak women. Now, this, 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 um, these two words, weak women, uh, in the Greek is literally translated as little women. And as I was studying um, that phrase there, I came to understand that it was a very derisive term uh, in that time. In other Greek writing of that period, it refers to immature and childish women. Right. So it was not a nice thing to say. Obviously, weak women is not what you want to hear. We know that Scripture calls women the weaker vessels, right? Uh, And they're to be protected because they're the weaker vessel, as as men are, as husbands are exhorted to do. But here, this term is being used, right, in a very uh, diminutive way. Diminutive way, It's, it's derisive. They are gullible. They are immature. They're childish. Easily influenced by these smooth talkers. He writes here, they're burdened with sin and swayed by various passions. These are... Women who, because of their guilt, because of maybe the sin they're walking in, instead of appropriating the promises of the gospel and turning to the gospel and turning to Christ, they will gladly give an ear to anyone who promises them alleviation from their guilt and shame. Anyone promising comfort and ease and a guilt-free life would be welcomed into their homes. Intellectually, they're gullible and easily duped. Look how he writes here. They're always learning... Yet, they're never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Imagine that. They're learning and learning and learning and learning. But they're never going to get to the truth. They're never going to get to the knowledge of the truth. They are mentally confused, morally compromised, undiscerning. And this is why they are easy prey. All of this intake that they're receiving does not lead them to come to know Christ. Therefore, they never experience true liberty and freedom in Christ and that the gospel offers. Now, is it just women who can be deceived this way? No, we know that. There are a lot of gullible men out there also who fall prey and under the sway of falsehood and false teaching and false teachers. But there's something about the makeup and wiring of a woman that makes them easier targets for this kind of stuff. Women. Generally speaking. Ladies. Right. Are more easily manipulated. By emotional appeals. It's interesting. When I think about. Who are the largest consumers. Of Christian resources. And products. And books. And, 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 and all these other things. It's women. By a huge margin. More women purchase. Christian books. Fiction. nonfiction, Than men do. They read more. When you think of the, the amount of conferences there are for, for women out there, and they're always packed. There's a lot of very prominent uh, women conference speakers uh, um, out there. Uh, women are more consistent church attenders. Women largely are the ones who attend more Bible studies than men do. Uh, there seems to be a greater spiritual interest in women. So it makes sense in all of that, That they may be more prone to fall under the sway of something that is false. Okay? Um, And so it's, it's just something to be aware about here. So I would say to you ladies, be extremely discerning about the content you take in. Because of your nature, because of the way you are wired, there's nothing wrong with that. God made women... With the qualities that he gave women that are inherent to them. As God made men with qualities inherent to them. Doesn't matter what our world says. Right? That is a twisting, a distortion uh, of what God has declared and what God has made. We understand this from God's word. Right? But be discerning. Not everything that is sold in a Christian bookstore is safe for consumption. Not every speaker who writes a book, a, a female speaker who writes a book geared to women is content that you should be consuming, all right? And, and this is relevant. Um, you're probably familiar with this author and this particular devotional book, uh, but it's relevant because two days ago, Sarah Young, the author of the multi-million best-selling devotional book, Jesus Calling, passed away a couple days ago. She apparently had been sick for many, many uh, years, um, that devotional book sold over 45 million copies. It's still being sold today. is still outpacing sales of a lot of other books to this day. A whole cottage industry came up around this particular book. So, is Jesus calling for kids? Is Jesus calling for parents? Jesus calling for dogs? Jesus calling for cat? I mean, it's it's everywhere. Okay, and and a lot of prominent leaders have endorsed. Uh, Both the author and this particular work. Uh, A whole lot of women purchased it. Of that 45 plus million, the overwhelming majority of that was purchased by women. But what's the problem? The problem happens to be with the claims that this author made as to how she derived the source for the material in that devotional. It wasn't the word of God. It was her quest or desire to receive personal divine revelation from God. Now, in the earliest editions of this book, she explained this process of how she would quiet herself and silence herself. Now, this author is super, has been super mysterious. She's passed now, but she didn't speak at conferences and stuff. This was kind of everything about her life works. In the past, she was a missionary. Um, and uh, was part of the Presbyterian Church at one point. I don't know whether she was in the last days of her life. But when you read of how she says she derived, she would quiet herself, she would sit still with a pen in her hand, and whatever came to her mind, she considered to be the voice of Jesus, and she would begin writing. Now, you may be familiar with an occult practice called automatic writing. Right? Where demons channeling through individuals would speak to individuals and they would write whatever these demons were telling them, right? That's, that's a big deal. Because she is claiming to speak words from God apart from the revealed word of God. That's always not just a red flag. It is incredibly dangerous. And if you've read the book and you know God's word you should find some of the things that she wrote there that was supposedly words from Jesus. Now, I'm not saying she claimed that her devotional was on par with Scripture, but the way she spoke about it would leave someone with that indication. In fact, because they're the words of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking to you. This is comforting words from Jesus uh, for your life, right? She wrote, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. But she didn't go to Scripture for that. She was just going to, whatever came to her mind and heart is what she would consider to be the voice of God. And she taught others to use this particular ascetic practice. Um, This leads people away from the means of grace that God has prescribed in His Word. In Scripture, we're not told to do that. Nowhere in Scripture are you told, sit in your room quietly, quiet your soul, still your spirit, grab a pen, and just write what comes to your mind. This is Jesus speaking to you. This is Him calling. That's not what Scripture has prescribed for us. And ultimately, Sarah Young led people away from the true Jesus. She did not lead them. To the Jesus of scripture. To the Jesus of the gospel. And I won't judge. I don't know where she is right now. But as one author wrote yesterday or posted yesterday online. That she ultimately now knows that the Jesus she was confronted with. On the other side of this was not the Jesus of her devotional book. And that is a terrifying reality. Now, there are dozens of other problems with that work. And that's why it's a dangerous work to be avoided. But it's not the only one. There are so many. It saddens me to go to a bookstore and I look on the shelves and everything that's front and center is this word of faith, hoo-ha, over here, you you know, peddling, you know, this prosperity gospel, this thing, that thing, this over here, this over there. And it grieves my heart they're not presenting the real Jesus and the true gospel. Be discerning, sisters. That goes for you men as well. I thank God, though, we have some mature women in this church. I'm really and totally grateful to um, the Lord for that. There are women who love the word, love the truth. How they encourage others. They use scripture when they counsel, when they pray. You can tell. We have some ladies here who love the truth and love God's word and are thankful for that. But don't let your guard down. Don't let your guard down. To our husbands, you have a responsibility before God to protect your spouse. And if you have children, to protect your children from error. Listen to what he writes about these, these false teachers. They creep into households. When When did they do that? Presumably when the husbands weren't home. While the husband was probably out laboring and working, they're like knocking on the door, kind of like the Jehovah's Witnesses. You ever notice how they come by during the day? They're doing the same, the very same thing here. I would imagine most cult leaders do. They're looking for the spiritually weak. And in places where, oh, hey, the woman's home by herself, let's knock on that door. Husbands, you have a responsibility to protect your home. These these guys are like the serpent in the garden. Went to Eve and deceived her, right? That's why husbands you too need to know God's word. You need to love God's word. You need to love truth. You need to be firm in the truth. The world and all that is false under the banner of Christianity in Christian in name only is trying to catechize your kids. Catechize your wife through all of these things. The world is making its disciples. And the world wants to lay claim to your family with error, with lies, with falsehood. Men, the Christian marketing apparatus is targeting your wife with a new book every week, it seems like, that she needs to buy. And it's from some popular female uh, writer, Christian, or a female who presents herself as this perfect wife, perfect homemaker. Look at her Instagram accounts. She's got always, her makeup's always perfect. She's showing you what she's cooking. It's always this incredible meal. She's a homesteader. She's growing stuff in her garden. And it's lush fruit. She's an entrepreneur. She's a girl boss. And she's going to teach your wife how to do the same thing. And it's remarkable how many of these female Christian authors are no longer married. Are divorced. Their homes are a mess. But they're pretending to tell you. On how you you too can have this too, no thanks, men. Help protect your homes and your families. If you're not leading spiritually in the home, who's your family going to follow? Who's your family going to follow? But it's not just your home that needs you. Your church needs you as well. You help me safeguard the flock of God here. To hold fast to the truth, we're in a battle. So I need you to be men of prayer. As Paul exhorted the men in 1 Timothy to be men who are lifting up holy hands in prayer. I need you singing loudly. I need you to know God's word. I need you to stand firm. We link arms side by side. For the sake of Christ and his gospel. Turn off the news and get in the book. If you know more about what's happening in the world and you know of God's word, you got a problem. You got a big problem. If you know what the latest, you know, hoopla is going on in politics or in, in the realms of finance or any, anything else or sports, more than you know God's word, this is going to be really times of difficulty for you, for your church and for your family. Now, if you're not married, if you're single, I want to encourage you, make sure you're connected to spiritual family. Make sure you're relationally connected to the body of Christ, because we need one another. We need to look out for one another. We need to be praying for one another, encouraging one another, watching out for one another. So that if someone does come with something that is false, man, it's immediately intercepted. Before it even gets to me. It's intercepted because we know God's word. We know to discern the truth from what is false. Lastly, in the passage, Paul closes with the outcome of those who trouble the church, of those who cause times of difficulty. Now, he, he writes of these two men here, Janus and Jamrus, who opposed Moses. Uh, who opposed the truth, he says, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. He's saying those causing trouble for the church, causing the times of difficulty are like these two men. Right? These two men. Now, if you read the account that Paul is referring to here in the life of Moses in Exodus chapter 7, you're not going to find these two names. These two names come from Jewish tradition. They're going to be unknown to us, but they would not have been unknown to Paul. Right? He grew up knowing Jewish tradition and the uh, Jewish mythology, if you will. Uh, so he's referring to them by name because he knows there are going to be those in the church there who are going to recognize what he's trying to get at here. Okay? And those two men, um, uh, Jewish tradition ascribes these names to the two chief magicians that were in Pharaoh's court. Exodus chapter 7 recounts how the magicians were able to reproduce the signs that Moses was doing. First, when he threw down the staff and it turned into a serpent, well, guess what? The sorcerers, the magicians, were able to reproduce that. The first two plagues, in fact, they were able to reproduce. After that, they couldn't do any more, which showed that these were they were just attempting to deceive. Uh, uh, but it, but it, we're told that by their secret arts, right, they were able to um, mimic these particular signs. But they could not continue to do what Moses was doing. Uh, by the power of God. These false teachers, like Janus and Jambres, like those magicians, uh, were imposters. They were deceivers. Moses, the man of God, came heralding the truth, announcing deliverance, right, for the people of God, that God was calling them out of G- Jesus. He was a herald for the truth, and he was opposed. Well, Paul in the same manner, comes heralding and proclaiming the gospel. Timothy is doing the same thing, and they are also being opposed as they preach the gospel. And this story Paul is using to illustrate what is going to happen to these individuals. What is their destiny? These who are corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Their end will be the same as that of the chief uh, musicians. They might have been, but these were magicians, okay? <laughs> it's probably the drummer and the bass player. Those, those always cause the most trouble. For a time, their gangrenous false teaching may spread. For a time, it may look like those who are teaching what is false, it may look like they have succeeded. Like that error is really taking root and gaining ground. But Paul's going to tell us here that it's, it's limited. Their success is going to be mitigated. They're not going to get very far. They will be exposed. Their folly, he writes, will be evident to all. Sometimes here, most certainly at the judgment before our Lord. So we should not be distressed by the proliferation of false teaching. Distressed because we're in times of difficulty where it seems like falsehood is ruling the day, where, where, where some may be uh, having their faith shipwrecked and they're being led astray. In the end, the truth will be vindicated, all will be made known. These men will be exposed, and we've seen this time and time again throughout the history of the church at her darkest moments when heresies seemed to be taking root and evil men were in the church and many of them leading the church and it looked like they were triumphing, God has preserved His truth. His truth has prevailed. The wicked and heretical were exposed and the church, brothers and sisters, has endured. We're still here. The gospel is advancing. The kingdom of heaven is advancing and growing and the church is growing. So stand firm in the faith. Hold fast to your confession. We're in times of difficulty. But it's not time to fear. I'll close with Jesus' words. Matthew chapter 24, 9 through 14. Then they. Who's they? Same people Paul's talking about. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then the end will come. Brothers and sisters, by God's preserving grace, you and I will endure to the end.